0: You, but maybe you've had the moments in your life where you've been making a plan and things didn't really uh, go as planned. Like at the time I asked Ellen out on a really fancy date. It was so nice. And about two days before, the uh, air condition in my car was not working. You know, nothing was working about that car except that it was still running and it was our only ride. So I picked her up, and she was really. Like the temperature was amazing and Ellen looked great. And we get in the car and I'm like, you need to roll down the window. And she's like, What? I think it's right. I had an oh, she had an updo. Sorry, I forgot what that is. It's it's a really special dude when you put your hair up. And, you know, and it, it takes a lot to hold it up. And the heat is gonna wilt it, right? Yeah, it's gonna be like wilted lettuce. And uh, so she didn't want a hairstyle like wilted lettuce. And I say, you need to roll the window down. And she's like, no, you have to roll the window up. And by the time we get to the, um, the date, we were sweating. It was so hot. Things were not going as planned, right? Have you ever made a plan and it's just not working? You know the moment that other people see you in a plan that's not going well. Out come the judgy eyes. Judgy eyes. They're coming out, and there's the pointing finger, like, what is wrong with you? Couldn't you foresee this? Why didn't you make a different plan? Why didn't you make a better plan? Why didn't you execute the plan you had? Or maybe you did and it still fell apart. There are always things that come along when we make our plans. Like, I grew up with a very conscientious engineer. Engineers are always planning for Murphy. You know Murphy's Law. When Murphy comes to visit, engineers are always thinking ahead about what could go wrong, especially aeronautical engineers. You know, so I've inherited from my dad a little bit of this. What could go wrong? So one year, I gave every kid in my family a crowbar. You know, they wouldn't fit in the stocking. They're this long. A crowbar. Some of you don't even know what a crowbar is. A crowbar is a bar so that you can bust out of a space where if an earthquake comes, the door is jammed. But you can put that in there and try it out. Do you see how the engineer in me is thinking? Or if you need to break out the window or go out that way, you can break it with this and then knock out all the glass and go out through the window. Do you all want a crowbar now? Yes. yes. Everyone needs a crowbar under the bed. Because Murphy is going to come and visit. I mean, there's so many good things to do with a crowbar when Murphy comes to visit. Murphy's law is that always something will go wrong and your plans will not be enough. This isn't just a biblical idea. And, you know, you can read the Proverbs and the judgy eyes are all over the Proverbs. You know, the fool in the Proverbs, when you read it, becomes apparent. And sometimes I'm reading it going, oh, that's me. You know, the, the moment where in Proverbs it says, the prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. I'm like, oh yeah, that that's me. You know that sign said, watch out for potholes. I just kept going. How many times in our lives have we actually been the person looking at ourselves in the mirror with judgy eyes on the pointing and finger and saying, Why can't you get it right? It's not just that we do this to others, it's that we also do it to ourselves because in the present we realize we're in trouble. That the plans of mice and men don't actually always work out. You know that little line from Robert Byrne's poem. His poem starts this way: We slick it cowin, timinus beastie. Yeah, this was written in Scottish language first in 1785. Should I keep reading? Thou needn't start away so hasty we bicker and brattle. I love the laid to rid and chase thee we murder and paddle. You don't understand it, do you? But the line that we really like in this long poem that happened on a day when they were plowing through the field and he and his brother actually upturned a, a mouse nest and he's watching the Mice leave. And he says, But mouse, you are not alone. Improving foresight may be vain. The best laid schemes of mice and men go often askew and leave us nothing but grief and pain, for prompts joy. Still, you are blessed compared with me. The present only touches you. But oh, I backward cast my eye on prospects dreary. And forward, though I cannot see, I guess. And fear. And so it is that though we make plans, they get away from us. Life has a way of happening. Stuff happens. All the things that we plan for school, for relationships, for our future, for that really nice car, All our plans so easily at times fall apart. And is there an opportunity in that moment when plans fall apart? Do we grasp and connect in that opportunity with what God might be doing there? That's the invitation when our plans fall apart. The the big idea for for us today is that when planning is not been enough, it is actually an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to trust God, to grow in faith, and actually experience Jesus and encounter him in his kingdom and for who he is. The Bible is full of moments like this. And one of the moments we're going to look at is in John chapter 2. It starts this way. It's a wedding day. And so that should be a cue for a first-century person to know there has been a lot of planning for this wedding. The wedding didn't happen just because two people met going down the road and thought, I'm love and so we should get married today. Let's go to the chapel and get married. There's way more planning that goes into it. In fact, they would have sent out an invitation months beforehand to all of the family and people in their network of relationships and said, we're going to have a wedding. Get ready. And so people would have been getting ready. And that family or those families would have been really busy getting ready in making plans. And then when everything is ready, they would go and say, "Okay, come to the wedding tomorrow. We're ready. Wow, that's short notice, right? But everything's ready. So come, tomorrow. And people would come. They would travel in for the wedding, and the celebration would begin. It says on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana, in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. In other words, he's saying, it's not the right time. It's not the right time. She must have, I don't know what she did next. Can you imagine? the pause of the moment, the awkwardness of what's going on. And instead of saying anything else to Jesus, Mary turns to the servants and says, do what he says. (laughs) Do what he says. And nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing and each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Now, I think this probably took a little while. We're talking between 120 gallons and 180 gallons of water. It it takes a little while to get that much water. You don't just turn on the tap. They had to go to the well, drop the bucket down, pull the bucket up, turn and fill it. Go back, do it again. Go back, do it again. I wonder, if you were one of those servants, what would it have been like? They were out of wine, not water. They said fill them up. Should we really do this? Mary said, to whatever said. But this is Jesus. He's a carpenter's son. What does he know about? Anyway, this is, we need wine, not water. And they're just filling it up. This takes time to do. And when it was all done, Jesus said, now draw some out and take it to the master of the bank. Do you think anyone said, is this a really good idea? Should, Should we really be doing this? This is sort of risky. And on the way, with their nice wine goblet, something changed. I don't know when it changed, but something changed. Notice what happens next. They did so. That's a great bridegroom moment. What Jesus did here in Cana and Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and the disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and there he stayed for a few days. Now, these folks had made plans, and it seems almost incredible to us that they had made these plans but it's possible to throw a party and run out of food. Have you ever been there in that moment where you realize, wow, there are more people at this party than I realize, and these chips are going fast. <laughs> Send someone for Doritos, quickly. <laughs> we need help. Sometimes we prepared a, a bowl of soup, and Ellen's like, wow, look at all the people here in our house. And is like, oh, Jesus, make the soup go farther. So we could add water to it, too. (laughs) But here's the thing. In our lives, there are so many times where we have made plans, and those plans really haven't been enough. Something happens. Something shows. There's more people present. We're not enough. Life changes. Things happen. And it really is an opportunity for us to entrust our lives to God. It's an opportunity even to enter into the space of someone else's planning failure and bring them to Jesus. It's an opportunity when, instead of us putting on the judgy eyes and the pointing finger, it's an opportunity for us to listen in and say, hey, let's bring them to Jesus. I don't know if Mary was related to the family. But Mary was there, and she was taking notice. And she knew they'd run out of wine. Maybe she went up to the tap to pour it and realized, hey, there's no more. And she turned to the servant and said, hey, would you get some more wine? There isn't any more. What? It's early in the night. We're done. That's it. We're out. It wasn't really her problem, was it? We don't really have an indication that it's her problem, but in her heart, she felt for the people who were at the end of their supply. She felt their shame. She felt their crisis. She felt their pain. And so what did she do? She brought it to Jesus. In a sense, she's bringing them to Jesus, and, and she just says so straightforwardly to Jesus, they have no more wine, they're out of wine. And so the opportunity when we see a planning failure is for us to step into that moment and turn to Jesus and say, they have no more wine. They have no more money. They have no more energy. They have no more skills for conflict resolution. Jesus there at the end of the line There's no more. That's what intercession is. When there's a plan in failure, it's a great opportunity for intercession. For us to step in when we've seen at a party, when we've heard at work, when we've seen something in our life group, when we look around in our neighborhood, when we're in one of our classes and we realize, oh my goodness, I didn't fail this test, but look, 67% of the class failed. Like, do you just walk out and rejoice and go, woohoo, glad for them, bad for them, good for me, bad for them? Or do you walk out and go, oh, Lord, help. Help them. I know I got a 51%. Help me too. <laughs> I was just barely there. This is what the movement into intercessory prayer is. It's an invitation to experience in life, to see in life, our planning failures and other people's planning failures and say, okay, Jesus, here it is. I'm going to come to Jesus with this. We all need come to Jesus moments, not just for ourselves, but with concern for other people. And so this really makes sense for us as a church because origin is really from the very beginning said we want to be the kind of people who are shaped by this gospel of who Jesus is and who are committed to following Jesus. So we're having a disciple-making life together. And then we want to bless our city. We want to bless our campus. And if we're to be a blessing, we have to be the kind of people that bring Jesus with us wherever we go. And so we're ready to pray. We're ready to turn and say, hey, Jesus, they're out of money. Hey, Jesus, they don't know what to do for this kid. Hey, Jesus, we're in this emergency room, and they don't know what to do. Have a come-to-Jesus moment where you introduce God to the situation. Some, some of us are so nervous about praying, So I want, to, I want to teach you a little lacrosse called bless. Just hold out your hand like this. Bless. I'm going to bless you, not slap you. I'm going to bless you, right? I'm going to bless you. And in in this, if you're ever, like, I just don't want to pray for a person, you can pray a blessing prayer for them. Pray about their body needs. Is this a body problem? Pray about their labor problems. Is this a work problem? Which is very related to money, right? So body, labor, emotion. Is this an emotional need? They are at the the bottom of the well in terms of their emotions. Is this a social need? They're really lacking connection with others. Is it a social relationship issue? And is it a spiritual issue? They're just not meeting and knowing God. So you can bless another person by praying for them. Just remember it. B-L-E-S-S. What is it? Body, labor, emotion, social, spiritual. You can pray for anybody. now. And all you can do is just turn around and say, hey Jesus. Here they are. You know, prayer rooms, and a life of prayer really does take this intercession to heart. We're a people who, because we've experienced the love of God, we anticipate and see God loves us. God loves me. That's our relational view. God loves. I am loved. I can choose to love, and I want to love the stuff of earth and honor people with it, honor God with it. And so when I get into that kind of life in regards to intercession, I'm going to worship I'm going to find some wisdom, but I'm also going to serve people. And one of the things that you can really do is pray for people. That movement of heart to say, I want to come to Jesus. I want to bring you to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, they're out of line. And Jesus would say, well, it's not my time. It's his time all the time now. This is what Jesus lives for. The scripture says he's interceding at the right hand of the Father for us all the time. So come to Jesus. Jesus, they're out of line. Jesus, they don't have enough. Jesus, they don't know what to do. I love the story of Ian in Taiwan. And he, he says about his life that in his circle and relationships in Taiwan, there weren't very many people who were followers of Jesus. And yet the most important thing in his life was family. There's many people. The most important thing in their life is family. We call it filial piety. The sense of my worship is really supposed to be towards my family. And so for him, coming to Jesus was a really big problem. He said, everyone lived together in my household. Mother, father, grandfather, daughters. And he said, people were supposed to burn sacrifices to the gods of their ancestors to keep everything good, and to my parents. So my parents hated it when I became a Christian. They worried that because I'd given my life to Jesus, I wouldn't burn sacrifices for them when they died. So when I became a Christian, I got beaten. It's horrible when everyone in your family, mom, dad, grandfather, beats you, laughs at you, and mocks at me. He goes on and says, I lead a a small group that has 25 people in it. (laughs) That's not a small group, is it? (laughs) I lead a small group with 25 people. One of them was beaten so badly by her dad when she became a Christian that I had to take her to the hospital. Out of the 25, 24 in our some our first-generation Christians. I have to pray for them. I have to fast for them because I worry about them. We're going to do 24-7 prayer for a month.
1: For each of us to
0: pray for one hour a day is a small price to pay because becoming a Christian costs a lot more. The heart for intercessory prayer knows I'm not enough and I can't even make plans that are enough. So Jesus, help us. There's a kind of desperation in that movement. You know, Paul speaks about this when he speaks about intercession in Romans. He says, look, the whole communion of God is involved in intercession. He says, the Spirit intercedes for us and helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And then he says, listen, Jesus is interceding. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So here's the deal with Jesus and the ascension, his movement back into the heavens and communion of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He went back with flesh. As a reminder for interceding for you and for me. He is interceding for us. He's still praying. Why does Jesus still live? So that he can pray for you and for me. Because he knows how quickly we get the end of our plans. Paul says he's interceding. He says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they might be saved. He says, I feel so desperate about this kind of prayer that if it would help, I would give up my own salvation, if it would be enough for them. He feels so deeply that he can't even make plans enough. The only plan is to come. I say, hey Jesus, thank you. And then the church is interceding. He pleads with the church to intercede for him. He says, I urge you, I beg with you, I'm pleading with you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying for me. He says, I'm in a struggle. I get to the end of my plans really quickly. So pray for me. Let's go one more. Thanks. You know, the thing is, strange thing that happens when we pray and we come to Jesus is that he actually invites us sometimes into some kind of action. I hear this frustration sometimes in in my own life group when we pray for other countries and and someone from that country says, well, what's the use? Everybody in my country is corrupt. Should I keep praying? And they have this little moment. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, you're you're exactly in the right place to pray because you're like, I can't make any more plans to make my country better.
1: This is the
0: moment to come to Jesus and say, look, we're bankrupt. We don't have anything else to do except pray. And it's in that moment of praying that God may actually invite you into his mission and then into justice, into some kind of movement. I mean, this is exactly what happened. Mary comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, they're out of line. Everyone's waiting. The servants are looking like he's a carpenter. He's not making wine. And then she just says, do whatever he says. There should be this expectation that when we pray, we're ready to step into the mission of Jesus and do whatever he says. It might not be that we need to do it. But it could be that others need some encouragement. If you hear from Jesus, do whatever he says. It's why sometimes when it comes to the Lord's Supper, we ask the question, have you been obedient to the last thing Jesus said to you? Have you actually responded to what Jesus said to you? Because it's that word that's actually on us and in our lives, and that we are willing, need to be willing to bear the weight of, the last thing Jesus asked of us, and then stick with it. So it says here in the scripture, they filled those jars, and then he says, take some of it, go to them. This is what happens in prayer, that when we stop and begin to pray, the Lord shows us what to do next. And sometimes we just are even waiting. It's like, when is this going to get here? When is the answer coming? will give you an illustration of this and story. So back uh, in 1994, Ellen and I moved to Vancouver. And we went to serve with a church called Gladstone that became known as City View. City View Church is still around. We resigned from there in 2010 and came out here to the campus. But before that, in around 1996, we had been renting a church building uh, from a United Church. And one of the members of the church came and said to our treasurer, when are you going to buy this building? And he's like, I don't know. Like, you need to give us an offer to buy this building because things are changing. So you need to buy this building. And Jim came and told me. They said we need to buy this building. I said, Jim. We're like 26 people. <laughs> how are we going to buy this building? We're 26 people, and we have a ministry center, and a, a dinner for the poor, and an ESL class. But how are we going to buy this building? I said, what's the price? He says, they think they could sell it for $600,000. But it'll probably be around $800 okay, what's the difference? <laughs> it doesn't really matter when you have zero. You <laughs> have nothing. And you have 26 people. I'm like, okay. He says we need to make them an offer. So we put put together a group inside that group of 26 people, and they began to pray, and they sort of said, okay, this is how we think we'll go around it, and go about this, and they, they put down all these things, of how they'd and how they shared vision, and how they continue to pray, but They wouldn't borrow money from the bank if they felt like it was going to um, compromise the ministry of the church. So so proud of them as they worked through this and really were acting in faith. And then by by 1998, um, they had $436,000 in the bank. And we were aiming towards $800,000. It was, we had uh, like six days before the subject tube was going to be removed, and we were supposed to have all the money $800,000. It was Wednesday night, and the, the church gathered. The church has grown to almost 50 people, so we gathered and prayed and talked. And at the end of the night, they decided that they believed, one, that God had called us to buy this building, but two, to do it without borrowing anything. This is when interest rates were up around 9%. Not, not cheap money, little more expensive money. So I remember walking out of that meeting going, Oh no, this is a mess. We're supposed to buy this building next week on Monday. And I have no way to do it. So I felt really bad as I, I called the other pastor of the, the church and said, Here's the situation. We believe we're supposed to buy this building, but the church voted not to do it this way. He said, what? We're going to look like idiots, like fools. It, well, it is the season of betrayal. The next day is Thursday before Good Friday. The, the insinuation was clear. I was a Judas pastor. I have betrayed him. I had betrayed their trust. We were a Judas church. <laughs> Felt really bad. Felt terrible. What can we do? We can just come to Jesus. We need eight hundred thousand. We have four hundred thirty-six. We believe we're supposed to do this. God, are you for real? Good Friday came and went. Resurrection Sunday came, and we had a blast in our service. I don't know what happened that Sunday except that these people really were enjoying the resurrection of Jesus and had so much faith. And and I called the pastor in the evening, how are you doing? He said, it's terrible. It's the worst Easter ever. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> this is so bad, Lord. <laughs> and then it's Easter Monday, and, and I had this Really strange realization like today's the day the subject twos are being removed. Oh, that's weird. <coughs> Nothing's going to happen today. All the banks are closed. And I got a phone call from uh, Jim. He says, I just had a call from someone here in the city. And he says he wants to loan us $200,000 at like 2% interest. He says we should talk tomorrow morning. I said, "Well, what are we going to do? The subject needs to be removed today." He says, "I'm going to start calling the lawyers." So we met Monday morning or Tuesday morning. It's the strangest thing. I, I mean, I was pretty young still at the time, and I've just never seen a check that big. And he slid it across the, the the table and said, "Put that in the bank. Get some interest for a few days before you have to pay it And then by the end of the day, in the mail and phone calls, we received checks and we received the promise of gifts that brought us to eight hundred thousand dollars. Okay, Lord. We have nothing. You have it all. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be that married couple? So they could have been the couple who ran out of wine. But instead, the story of their wedding like this, do you remember the wedding where they ran out of wine and Jesus showed up and did something amazing? They were drinking that good wine for years. It was so much. And can you imagine being that couple when things are really going badly in their life? When, when things are not going as planned and, and the husband looks over and says, oh, remember the day we got married? Jesus showed up. I mean, would that build your faith when you have that kind of story as part of your life? Hey, remember, God can show up. And remember, there were people in our lives who showed up, Mary went to Jesus and asked for help. That's all we can ask for help, too. You know, those kind of events can really change the life and story of people and of us. You know, 24-7 prayer a year ago when I was in the prayer room praying, you know what the Lord put on my heart when I was praying about this campus? Refuge. Wreck Beach. And part of it was because a few months before, I had been talking with a security guard who was so burdened about the situation with Wreck Beach, and he says, oh, it's the parade of lost souls. Because he was here in the evenings, always having to deal with people returning from the beach and their situation. And our temptation is to write that off and not actually see the situation and see the community and see what's good. We don't see the difficulties. Some of us love winter, but if we can go to wreck beach and get sick, enjoy it with our clothes on. <laughs> the temptation always for us is that when we see people who have a wrecked life, is that we point the finger and bring the judging eyes. And yet, here in the season of lead, when we're trusting God, he's inviting us into a different kind of fasting. He's actually asking us to fast from judgmentalism and criticalness and to actually just be a part of what he wants to do in the world instead of having the judgy eyes and the pointing finger. I mean, look what he says. You will call for help, and the Lord will answer you will cry for help, and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and the malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the new day. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in the sun-scorched land. He will strengthen This season, fast from judgment. Just suspend it. Fast from the point pointing finger and offer the open hand. Come with Jesus. Come to Jesus. You never know what God might do because you prayed. You don't know until you do it. When we enter into this remembrance of the Jesus sign, he changed water to wine. It was just an event that kept pointing to him. And so I wonder about your life and mine. Do you see your desperate moments as an opportunity for Jesus to show up? Or is prayer the last thing to think of? Do you see the desperate situations of other people when their plans are failed as an opportunity which Jesus might show up? And that the church might actually be in company with it? It's the Jesus sign that begins to change our lives. Jesus himself is a sign. That's why we come to supper here. We come to this table where we remember and recall that Jesus had touched our lives. We remember and recall that Jesus offers himself, that he showed up. He didn't just intercede. He stood in the gap, reaching between heaven and us so that in one body he might create a new people. Oh, God could turn sinners into saints? Yes, through the body of Jesus. And so we remember and we recall. As we come to the Lord's Supper today, I want to ask you, have you been obedient to the last thing that Jesus asked you to do? Have you been responsive? If not, just confess that to him. Agree with him. If not, say, okay, Jesus, let's go. Make a commitment in your heart and believe to respond to Jesus. Let's stand together. Lord, you have said, this is how you showed love among us. You sent your one and only Son into the world that you might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we loved you, but that you loved us. You sent your Son as an atoning sacrifice for sin. So we say...